Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, a buildings and landscape curator at the National Trust. And today I'm on my way to Knoll in Kent. Knoll was once home to royalty and now houses one of the UK's most important furniture collections. But today it's not just the furniture I've come to see. I'm here to observe how the work being done at Knoll is helping to save one of the Red List's most endangered items. Right, now this looks to me to be the middle of Seven Oaks. Victorian shop front, some Georgian buildings. Looks like a pretty Kentish market town, but judging by the traffic, it's a busy commuter centre. Hoping to meet Sam Bailey, the property curator at Knoll. Now she's told me it's a town centre property with an unassuming entrance. I should look out for a church and a school. Just need to concentrate on this traffic. There's the church and Seven Oaks School. Seven Oaks School. Knoll, 30 yards. We're there. We made it. What a lovely surprise to come off that very busy high street into this open countryside. Mature trees. And look, some fallow deer crossing the road in front of me. What a dream of a place. Coming over the rise, the sky is lightning. And I think I'm going to get the first. There it is. What a sensational house. That is Knoll. It looks like a, a medieval village. A thousand different chimneys with every conceivable roof shape and form. It is an immense place. They've pulled up in the car park in front of me is the most enormous fallow stag rubbing his enormous hand-like antlers against a thorn bush. I think it's probably the rut. How am I going to get past this rutting stag? It's the most sensational parkland. Acres and acres of space and I can't see... That's good. The fallow stag has gone off to see its friends. So I'm going to head off towards the main entrance. It feels like I've got this place to myself, or at least it's me. The crows and the rooks and some magpies and jays and, of course, the flocks and flights of these brightly coloured parakeets. Masses of wildlife. Which of these species that I've seen may be on the red list? Approaching the gatehouse... There's a large iron knocker. There's a lovely sign here. Please wait. It will take us about two minutes to reach the door. I'm not surprised. It's an immense place. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Lovely to meet you. It's lovely to meet you. I'm bowled over by your house. Now, look, we're coming through the gatehouse, opening onto this beautiful green courtyard... It's sort of hybrid between a a sort of medieval country house and a castle. Yes, there's been a property here from around the 1200s, but it was taken over by the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1456. It was with the See of Canterbury until Henry VIII persuaded the then Archbishop to let him have this palace. It then became a royal palace. And it was with them until the Sackvilles took over in 1604. So, Sam, who are the Sackvilles? Well, I can take you to meet them if you'd like. Really? Yes, come with me. Going through another enormous oak door. Take me in. Come through. 
What a fantastic room. This is a great hall. This is the height of gracious living. You've got some full-length portraits, who I guess you're going to tell me are Sackville's. The portrait just in front of us is Thomas Sackville. He was a Lord Treasurer, which you can see he's got his wand of office in his hand there. So he would have been the third most powerful person in the country underneath the king. He's the start of the Sackville story here at Knoll and the reason that Knoll is here today. OK, come with me. Classical columns, diamond-paned windows with some coloured glass and everywhere ornament and sparkle. This is called the Great Stairs. My goodness, it feels ancient. The walls are painted. So what are these images here? We've got a frieze of classical figures. It's all to do with the ascent of man and the different stages of life as you go through your ascent. So we've reached the first floor landing and again we've got painted figures. We've got a chap in full armour lying prostrate on the floor with a decapitated head in the foreground. Two infants rolling around in delight for some reason. There's a, a lion holding a sword looking up at a partially clad classical woman holding a staff with an eagle soaring over her head. I mean, this is complex symbolism, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. We've left the top of the staircase, come through a little sort of panelled anteroom into, oh, look at that. It's a long gallery. Must be 30 metres long and hung from one end to the other in a series of portraits in gold frames. Beneath these portraits, we've got an array of chairs, one chair after another. I mean, the upholstery is extraordinary. Here we've got a settee, I suppose, lush pink upholstery with little bobbles and tassels. You can't quite see all of the tassels, unfortunately. We've lost some of those over the years, but it would have been a really deep red colour with metallic threads and then adorned with tassels in the fringing. What you're looking at is a collection of furniture, a real display of somebody's wealth. And you're looking at some very rare survivals. So, James, you've come here to find an endangered species. <laughs> I can tell you that it is somewhere in this gallery. So did you want to have a go at maybe thinking what it might be? You've got silk and wood and feathery stuff. And maybe there's an incredible moth infestation, but you wouldn't tolerate that no, in wouldn't. the National Trust. No. I've no idea. You're going to have to help me out. The endangered item on the red list is mm. actually the art of tassel making, which also known as passamontry. Most people are familiar with the red list of endangered species, which um, has animals such as pandas and rhinos, things we're very familiar with. But a group of people from the Heritage Craft Association were inspired by this to create a red list of endangered crafts. This is a list of crafts ranked by the likelihood that they'll survive to the next generation. I'm Mary Lewis. I'm the Endangered Crafts Manager at the Heritage Crafts Association. There are four levels on the red list of endangered crafts. The first level is viable crafts where there are plenty of people to pass on the skills. So boat building, the skills are being passed on to the next generation. The next category is endangered. These are crafts that are considered vulnerable. An example of this is sail making. We think we have around 20 to 50 makers. The next is critically endangered, where we think there's a serious risk that this craft will not survive to the next generation. An example of this is diamond cutting. 
We have five practicing professional diamond cutters in the UK. And the final category is locally extinct, and that means it's extinct in the UK. Passamentary or trimmings, the likes of which you'd see at Knoll, are on the endangered list. We have around five companies left with the skills to do this craft. In this country, we're traditionally very good at preserving our tangible heritage, things you can put a plaque on, things you can go and visit. We're less good at preserving the intangible elements of our heritage. Things like our folk dance, our songs, our traditional practices and our traditional craftsmanship. And these are all things that need to be enacted through a person. Obviously, tangible heritage is equally important, but they work together to show what our social and cultural heritage is. As an example of how important and precious these chairs are, this suite here, it has a stamp underneath it, WP. Um, and do you have any idea what that might mean? WP, mm -hmm. a stamp, WP. Oh, I don't so that stamp stands for Whitehall Palace. Whitehall Palace? Yeah, which means that this set is extremely <sighs> rare because as we know, wow. White, Whitehall Palace burnt down. So these ones are about 1660. 1660. Mm -hmm. That's very grand, isn't it? It absolutely is. And if you come with me, I'll show you another chair of great significance. These have another stamp underneath them um, and the stamp is HC. Do you have any idea what that might stand for? HC? Mm-hmm. Hampton Court. Yeah, quite really? right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, that is astonishing. I want to see more. This is a house of treasures. Okay, come with me. Oh, no. That is staggering. I guess a state bed. It absolutely is a state bed. In front of me is this state bed lit by a candlelight rises perhaps three metres with a downpour of this most luxurious blue and gold silk with an elaborate sort of floral pattern beyond the gold cornice with figures and carvings in it. What is sensational about this is this sort of blossom of passamentary. Passamentary, yeah. Passamentary. That's right. It does look like a cherry tree in blossom. Yes. It's really beautiful. It's had a lot of conservation work done to it. There's a full high glass screen between us, the viewers, and this great room and the bed. On the one hand, it is a barrier, but on the other, it gives a great sense of preciousness. The craftsmanship alone would have cost so much money, but the tassels themselves, it's an interesting story as to who would have made those the gilding, the carving, the textiles, they would have been dominated by men. It would have been unheard of for women to enter those guilds. However, when it comes to the tassels, that's where women could come and enter this field. Ordinarily, they would have been thinking of children and maybe working tenant farms, but this is an area where they could get away from that and try something different. My name is Annabelle Westman. I am a textile historian consultant and author of Fringe, Frog and Tassel. A silk woman was a very good way of making money. Men were not so involved then, probably because there was not much money to be made. Whilst there was a demand for trimmings, you really were making pennies as opposed to shillings. The increase of the use of trimmings really started in the 16th century more money was to be made. 
men became more involved with trimmings to the detriment of the women. Women who had been independently operating before found that their status was severely curtailed. It's so sumptuous and gorgeous, isn't it? I'm longing to get closer. I want to break through this glass and, <laughs> and see the things close up. But I guess that would be quite impossible, wouldn't it? It is, unfortunately. However, here at Knoll, we've got another two beds behind glass and we can go and look at the King's Room. Wow. Down some more steps to another panelled room. What's the name of this room that we're walking through now? Spangle Bedroom. Oh, another bed. Sam, you're racing me through. I need to see all of this. Where we are we are. going now? This is the ballroom. Another room very richly furnished. Wow, this is a treasure box. We're just walking through the Reynolds room now. You are mean to make me <laughs> go through here. Sam, you are unstoppable in showing me sensational things. We've walked into a glass container. Feels a little bit like being in an aquarium, looking out. This is the king's room, and this is the room where you can come behind the glass with me. And you're going to let me free in the real room, really? We're putting two suction pads on a handle and pulling open a secret glass door. You're really going in there? We're really going in. Wow, this is a great privilege. Beyond the glass, most elaborately furnished room. Tapestries from floor to ceiling. The roundels and compartments. It looks like fruit and vines, wreaths of laurel leaves. Below, huge silver vases, stamped velvet curtains. Again, the edges of the curtains covered in tassels to the pelmet. As I turn round, I mean, that is another beautiful bed with a canopy surmounted by feathered finials. Ostrich um, finials. Ostrich. Yeah. yeah. It was commissioned in around about the 1670s, 80s for James II's marriage to Mary of Modena. So it's James II's wedding bed that we have here. Wow. How was it that all this royal furniture came to Knoll and has survived here? The astonishing furniture at Knoll stems from the marriage of the Cranfield family to the Sackvilles. I'm Emma Slocum, I'm one of the senior national curators at the National Trust and I specialise in dress and textiles. Thomas Sackville founded the family dynasty at Knoll in the early 17th century. However, his amazing collections of furnishing textiles and tapestries and their wealth were all lost during the English Civil War when the house was occupied by parliamentary forces. Meanwhile, the Cranfield family lived at Copt Hall in Essex. Order! Order! Lionel Cranfield had become Lord High Treasurer in 1621. While the family had retained their fortune, the Cranfields had lost their political power through Lionel Cranfield's spectacular fall from grace. So we have the Cranfields at Copt Hall, who had the money but not the status, and the Sackville family at Knoll, who had the status but whose finances were in a desperate state. The marriage of Francis Cranfield to Richard Sackville was advantageous for both families. 
the Cranfield family had a collection of extraordinary early 17th century furniture, including magnificent embroidered state beds. This already opulent furniture collection was further enhanced by their son Charles. Charles was appointed Lord Chamberlain to King William and Queen Mary, which gave him access to all of the unwanted and unused royal furniture in store for his own personal use. The amount of material acquired by Charles Sackville was unusual in its quantity. He was filling up carts from Hampton Court Palace, Whitehall Palace and Kensington Palace on an unprecedented scale. When his mother Frances dies, he moves to Knoll and he takes all the amazing furniture from Copt Hall with him to furnish his new state rooms. Sam, it's fascinating. The first bed you showed me is in astonishing condition, vibrant and sparkly, and the colours are rich, whereas this bed has got to a stage where its age has diminished it, I suppose. As you can see, a small area of yes, the salmon pink left over there, which would have looked remarkable against the golds and the blue colours that you can just still see here. It would have been a really wonderful feast for the eyes of colours and metallic threads and shimmering. It must be a great dilemma, on the one hand, to preserve the authenticity of things, but at the same time to represent the original effect. How on earth do you begin to do that? They're the type of decisions we would talk to specialists about. And we're really lucky here at Knoll that we've got a conservation studio here. So we've got that technical expertise on site. I can take you to the conservation studio if you'd like, where you can discuss how they preserve things. Sam, I'd love to do that. Yes, please. And this is a very different place to the one I arrived in this morning. Lots of smiling visitors, walkers and a full of car park. This building here is our conservation studio and this used to be a barn. It's an enormous building. It's more like a monastery or something. Welcome to our conservation studio, James. I can see beyond this glass door every conceivable piece of scientific equipment and an array of objects and busy people. And there's public access. There he is. Right? Emma, let me introduce you to James. James, this is Emma. She's our conservation studio manager. How do you do, Emma? Some beautiful objects. Yeah, basically we service the main components of what you would find in a historic house. OK, I'll leave you guys to Bye. it. Then. Bye. At Knoll, we have a range of specialists and as you can see, we've got a wide range of objects in the studio today, from paintings and furniture to some metalwork further down the studio. Emma, in the fantastic tour of the house, what is quite evident is there are some serious dilemmas in conservation, aren't there? The first bed we saw was in pristine condition. And later on in the tour, we saw the king's bed that I think has become a sort of antique relic, sort of stands in the place of a bed, mm. but really has lost all its colour, its surface, and is not really representing what the maker intended at all. And I suppose as a conservator, you've got two options, to restore it, to revive the colours and to glitz it up, or to hold it in place and to do very little, just ensure that it goes on. But I would guess both of those options are quite difficult and problematic. If you know National Trust properties, you'll realise that the feel that you get when you walk in is 
pretty unique. You know, it's not mm. comparable for one property to the next. The impression that we want to give can lead in our decisions over conservation or indeed restoration. Have there been moments at Knoll when you've replaced old objects? We haven't actually replaced materials. When you look at these upholstered chairs, you'll see all the layers. They're really exciting. It's a bit like archaeology, really. You wouldn't really want to replace all of the old degraded textiles. But I can show you some examples lifting the presentation of the room. So this is from an amazing set of chairs. Emmy showed me this detailed photograph of what I guess it's an upholstered seat. The velvet looks complete and still nicely figured. The legs are still shiny and beautiful and woody, but this tassel at the front, virtually gone. It's like it's been sat on and rubbed and scratched by cats, beginning to disfigure the object. It strikes me as being a, a beautiful object, but very out of balance, visually speaking. What do you think we could be doing to help this, this sad, straggly crew? It's a complex sort of aesthetic yes. balancing act, isn't it? Our thoughts went to actually removing this trim. You know, there's not many trim makers or, or heritage furnishing people out there any, oh, no. anymore. So we spent a lot of time um, researching manufacturers to try and source 50 metres of trim. So quite bespoke. So these are the different samples that we got back from the manufacturers. You've got these short little samples of uh, silk edgings in wonderful rich colours with a sensational glossiness. And you're confronting me with this photograph of an object that is completely shattered and gone. And I'm just wondering how you'll ever marry up these beautiful pristine things on the edge of a chair that has seen 350 years of wear. How are you going to do that? I think you'd be in trouble if you used any of those, wouldn't you? Yes, so much thought had to go into it to get to the point where we could actually stitch something onto the chair. So when we go over to the Reynolds room, I don't know if you noticed that they had new trim on them, but perhaps we could identify them. Can we do that? Yes. How fascinating. Emma, it's lovely. The house is alive with visitors. It always feels completely different when it's open to people. It feels people. alive again. Yeah. Come into the oh, yes. Reynolds room, which I think you've been in here before, haven't you? I'm going to challenge you to look at the furniture again and tell me what bits of trim do you think might have been replaced? I'm going to start on this settee. The upholstery is slightly mottled, varies in colour across the surface, varies in texture a good deal mm. because of its age. Looking at the braid and the tassels at the bottom, it has the same sort of quality. Quite so honestly. You, you can't see where like maybe a new section start against an old section now? It looks consistent and coherent and it looks right and it looks natural and it looks to be part of the original. I'm quite hard pressed to tell you whether that is new or old. <laughs> it's not a mix, I'm really glad. It's no, it's not. It's not a mix. This is all oh. the new trim that we have bought for the suite. That balances brilliantly against the, the rest of the room. It's remarkable. Thank you very much. I think it's an absolute triumph. By defining the furniture in this way, you're suddenly getting the shape back. Exactly. It's giving a lovely I silhouette. I can see the shape of the chairs. All these little details you wouldn't think were necessarily notice. It's very subtle, but overall, I mm. think it lifts the whole room. It's yeah, it um, does. such it a does. significant difference. But you're entirely dependent, I would guess, on people who are able to make these things in order to achieve this look. Tassel making is one of those crafts endangered on the red list. What on earth would happen if it became extinct? 
I think we'd be much more limited in our options about how we approach the interpretation and presentation of our collections. I think as a National Trust, we need to work within our own teams and also externally to look at how we can maintain these skills. I mean, I'm thinking about how we can do that through apprenticeships and internships. And I know that's something that the National Trust has been doing as well. I've just walked out through the gatehouse again, Noel, and I'm very sorry to leave this great house. Turning back and looking at Noel again, there are the big things that are obvious, keeping the roofs on, keeping the windows painted, keeping everything going. You go into the interior and see those assemblages of furniture and pictures and textiles. And they're all completely dependent on one another in order to give their meaning. But without that detail on the chair, something enormous is lost. Even a little bit of braid missing, it reduces the meaning of an object significantly. It's always very inspiring meeting passionate people and seeing visitors enjoying these places. And I think it's a great and timely reminder for me to remember that these places matter to people and that the fine detail is very important to get right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. Remember, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more audio programmes from the National Trust at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. We'll be back soon with another episode, but for now, from me, James Grasby.